Well, Happy New Year, everybody. I don't know if you noticed, but the good news is that somehow we made it. I mean, the past 10 months or so have been no joke. Uh, we've been stretched in ways that we never imagined. We've seen things that we never thought we'd see. And actually, we've learned something. We've learned that we're actually stronger and more resilient than we realized. I mean, think about it. We've all had to learn new ways to do life while at any time uh, remaining ready to change everything. It was a tough year. But even with all the challenges, there was much for which we can be thankful for example, uh, over the break, I was reflecting on how thankful I am for your lovable Keystone staff. I mean, yeah. I, this past year, they had to learn how to do a whole bunch of things that, well, they hadn't planned on having to learn, like uh, how to become a small broadcast operation, for example. Shout out to those of you at home. Uh, or how to stay connected relationally with you when social distancing was mandated and, and they did it and they dug deep and they stepped up and they made it happen. And honestly, their enthusiasm and creativity inspired me to press on even when none of us was entirely sure where we were going. Uh, I'm, also, I'm also thankful for all of you who call Keystone home in the room here and, and watching online. Uh, even though this year it was filled with so many unanswerable questions and doubts, and struggles, and fears, and, and even for some of you, unspeakable loss. You kept moving forward. You, you kept believing that God was somehow up to something good, even in the middle of a world that often felt like it had just gone completely off the rails. You kept engaged. You kept listening. You kept praying. You kept giving. You kept trusting. You kept believing. And for that, I just need to say thank you. Your strength brought me strength. Honestly, it makes me really excited to see where the story of Keystone goes from here as we begin to gather again in 2021, as we begin to travel again, as we begin to serve again. Some of you went travel again. I remember what that was like, right? as we begin to dream again about more than just our church surviving to the end of the pandemic. Now, I'm convinced that we will emerge from this season stronger, better for it, and, and more committed than ever to our common mission of helping all people find and follow Jesus. Now, I'm more confident than ever that God is with us and God is for us and God is ahead of us as we carry the incredible message of his grace as demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs that message. And, and by the way, um, as I was working up this section of, of what I wanted to say to you, I, I kept thinking to myself, I, I bet there's people here and online who just aren't feeling that optimistic about the future. And, and if that's you, you need to know I'm truly honored that you're with us I mean, because my goal for the next three weeks is actually to remind you and hopefully inspire you that with, with the reality that in spite of all of the challenges that surround us, and they are many, God really is still in control. That's actually a great name for a series, if I do say so myself. <laughs> 
Anyway, to get us going uh, with our conversation today and really to lay the groundwork for the entire series, I want to remind you of one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Uh, and it's something you're all very familiar with. It's something we've come to call the Last Supper. Uh, there's a famous painting, of course, by Leonardo da Vinci um, that you know, we see hanging up all over the world. It, it was a very, very significant and pivotal moment uh, for any number of reasons. But, but and as you know, it was the final meal that Jesus shared with his first disciples before being betrayed and arrested and tried and convicted and executed on a Roman cross. So that much you know, what you may not realize is that the Last Supper was actually also a special ceremonial meal held by Jewish people each year uh, to commemorate the Passover. The Passover is the word they used to describe the moment God had rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And in Jesus' day, it had happened 1,400 years earlier. Uh, this wouldn't have been the first time Jesus and his disciples would have shared a Passover meal. They did so each year. Uh, but, but this time, that the year of the Last Supper, that, that would, have been, well, it would have felt radically different. And here's, here's what I mean. A year earlier, when they had gathered for Passover, uh, things seemed to be going really well. Uh, Jesus' celebrity had grown, and literally everywhere they went, hundreds and hundreds of people would gather to hear Jesus teach and to watch him heal. I mean, a year earlier, when, when they sat around the table, Jesus had seemed untouchable. He seemed unstoppable. He had the power of God in his hands. And they were convinced that he would go on to change the world. But, but, but that was then. And when the disciples gathered in an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem for what would be their last supper with Jesus, well, well things weren't going well. The momentum of the Jesus movement had shifted suddenly and, and rumors were swirling that the Jewish religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus. And that actually uh, made sense because they had begun to see him as a legitimate threat to their power and their influence, and they were willing to do anything they could to remain in power. And, and the disciples, well, they knew that, uh, that if Jesus went down, they were going down too. And so as I imagine it, they would have been a little bit uneasy the night of that Last Supper. And they were confused. This wasn't how they thought things would play out. And that was before Jesus began talking about his impending death, which really, really caught them by surprise. Honestly, the disciples' only solace that night would have, would have come from what would prove to be a flawed way of thinking. It's actually something most of us have thought before at one time or another. And the thought goes like this. Um, if God is with you, things should get better, Right? In other words, no matter how dark the situation, no matter how dense the storm clouds that blow into your life, if God is with you, if he's on your team, if he's on your side, then things will soon be looking up. And that's a great thought. I like this thought, except for the fact that, as you'll soon see, it's, it's often completely wrong. <laughs> anyway, a man by the name of Mark who wrote one of the accounts of Jesus' life that made its way into the New Testament of the Bible, describes what happened that night during that Last Supper for us. He recorded it this way. He writes, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. That's those first 12 disciples that were called to follow Jesus. And he says, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, 
one of you will betray me. And just so we're clear, uh, one who is eating with me. And essentially, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey, one of you is going to hand me over to the religious leaders to be arrested. One of you, one of my closest friends. Uh, one of you who left everything to follow me. One of you who has seen things that no human had ever seen before. One of you who had experienced things that no human had ever experienced before. One of you, my inner circle. And the disciples responded like you'd expect them to respond. Mark tells us they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. And so Jesus clarifies it. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. That was a part of the meal. The son of man, Jesus is speaking of himself there using an image from the Old Testament. The son of man will go, as in pass, die, just as it was written about him. Jesus basically says, one of you is going to turn on me and I'm going to die. Just like the Old Testament prophets predicted hundreds of years ago. Now, now pause with me for a second um, to note something that you may have never noticed before uh, when it pertains to the Bible. And it goes like this. Uh, the Bible is actually filled with narratives set in the midst of incredible uncertainty. It really is. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I found myself drawn to the Bible over and over and over again during 2020. One of the most incredibly uncertain periods in all of human history. And here's what I mean by this. I mean, the Bible isn't a library of stories about people having fun while traveling the world exploring local food cuisines, right? It's not even a word, right? I mean, it doesn't record lives in which everything went great on Monday and then went to bed, woke up Tuesday, and everything just got better, and then Wednesday came along and better still. And those just aren't the stories of the Judeo-Christian faith that you find in the Old and New Testaments of your Bible. In fact, it's it's only a slight exaggeration to say that almost every single narrative in the Bible is set in troubled times. And almost every single passage from the Bible that people like you and me look back on today to find hope in uncertain times was written by people who discovered, well, they discovered something that's our big idea for today. It goes like this. Even in the midst of suffocating uncertainty, God is still in control. Even in the midst of suffocating uncertainty, God is still in control. Even when it seems like all hope is lost and that God is apathetic or maybe even absent, he's very much still in control and he's very much worth trusting. Uh, just for fun, here's a couple of my favorite examples along with images from an incredible website developed by a dude who has way too much time on his hands. And I know this because this one particular individual has imagined and photographed the entire biblical narrative in Lego. It's a legit art form, right? Seriously, check, check this out. Here's an image from the Old Testament story. See what I mean? Even as rack focus, very well done. Yeah, uh, here's an image from Old Testament story of a teenager named Joseph, who, uh, and many of you know the story, he had a very complicated relationship with his older brothers. So much so that one day they actually seized him and threw him in a deep well before having a debate that he could hear them having about whether to kill him or sell him. <laughs> you know, like brothers do. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's an incredible scene made even more incredible when you realize that even at the bottom of a well, while listening to his brothers decide his fate, the Bible's authors record that God was actually with Joseph. 
He was still there. He was still active. Even though it didn't feel like it to Joseph, he was still very much in control. Well, then there's this image uh, from the story of an Israelite mother who has a baby boy shortly before learning that Pharaoh, the ruler in Egypt, had decided to murder baby boys as a way to temper population growth among his slaves. So this mother wraps her newborn son in cloth, places him in a basket, and shoves him out into the Nile River, which is filled with all sorts of wonderful and scary aquatic creatures, right? And he, she does this in order to save his life. I mean, it's like, it's, it's unthinkable. And yet, when you keep reading the story, and, and those of you who did time in Sunday school know what where this is going. When you read the story, you learn that even as the little baby was floating down the river, God was with him. God was still in control. He was still orchestrating a story behind the scenes of situations that seemed completely out of control. Eventually, the baby was found and named Moses. I mean, he grows up to become the man God would use to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery. And finally, just one more because I just couldn't pick. <laughs> one more. Check out this image from the story of Israel's most famous king, a man by the name of David. One day, David wakes up in his palace and he learns that his son, Absalom, has raised up an army and intends to overthrow him, like dethrone dad and sit on the throne himself. I mean, I know, I mean, I have four boys. Many of us have trouble with our kids that leave us wondering if God is just not paying attention in our lives. But, but David's trouble was a little bit more significant than anything I've experienced. And if you've experienced anything at that level, we should talk afterwards because you probably need some extra help. But anyway, yeah, the authors of the Old Testament and the New Testament record that even while situations like this are going down, even while his son's army was preparing to dethrone him, God was still with David, right there in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the uncertainty, in the middle of the chaos. In fact, when you read the Bible carefully, you quickly realize that every single time it seems like things have spun out of control, every single time it seems like the bad guys have won, they haven't. Because even in the midst of suffocating uncertainty, God is still there, God is still at work, and God is still in control. All right, let's check back in with Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper. So Jesus has just told them that one of them will betray him, and while they're trying to figure out which one of them it will be, lots of awkward eye contact and looking away, right? Jesus does something nobody was expecting. Mark records this for us. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread which would have been common at the Passover meal. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, so far so good, saying, and here was the showstopper, take this, this is my body. And we're so familiar with this story, if you spend any time in church, I think we miss the emotion that would have accompanied this moment for those first disciples. I mean, they had been participating in Passover meals since they were children. This was their story. This was their history. And Jesus was messing with the script. Like there were things you were supposed to say in a certain order during Passover and Jesus was going off the script. And I have to imagine that, you know, as Jesus' disciple Peter sat there, he would have had some thoughts. They would have been something like this. What do you mean this is your body? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, you know I'm radically committed to you, but this isn't about you. <laughs> 
This is about the nation of Israel being rescued from slavery in Egypt. Uh, our people, your people. And, and, and by the way, what do you mean like broken? And, and, and while we're asking questions, why are you becoming so dark and mysterious? I mean, if you really came from God, and I'm convinced that you did, we're convinced that you did, then nobody's getting broken. Things will turn around soon because that's what happens when God is with you. Things should start moving in the direction of certainty, not uncertainty. Well, as the meal continues, things actually get even more disturbing. Mark records, uh, then he says, Jesus took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, and again, there were cups of wine that were parts of the ceremonial meal, so Jesus grabs a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Okay, so far, so good, and here's what he says. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And in this moment, Jesus is foreshadowing what was going to take place hours later when he would be nailed to a cross and left to die before their eyes. And once again, his disciples would have been confused. What do you mean, blood of the covenant? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Jesus, you're not bleeding. Well, then as the account continues, you know, uh, the meal ends and Jesus leads his disciples out of the upper room somewhere in the old city of Jerusalem. And they exit the city. They go down through this valley called the Kidron Valley and up to a garden called Gethsemane, which is about halfway up the Mount of Olives. And when they get to the garden, uh, Jesus basically looks at his guys and he says, okay, by the way, um, not only will one of you betray me, but all of you will, in short order, abandon me. He, he says it this way. He looks at them and he says, you will all fall away, Jesus told him. For it is written, and here's a prophecy, I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep, that's the disciples, will be scattered. And they're like, who are you calling sheep, right? No. Yeah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And as I imagine it, Peter, once again, would have thought, enough of this. There's no way that's going to happen. I mean, God is with you. And if God is with you, this isn't how the story goes. If God is with you, if God is in control, then there's more certainty, not less. I mean, he will intervene. It's like it's got to be right around the corner. Things will get better. And then Peter even looks Jesus in the eye and he says, even if all fall away, all these other guys, okay, we already took out the one, there's 12 of us, that leaves 11. If all the other 10 fall away, not me. I mean, Jesus, you called me out of the boat, I walked on water. I've seen things, where would I go? I am with you until the end. Whatever happens, I'm not going anywhere. But here's the thing, and some of you know the story. Hours later, a little girl, obviously very intimidating little girl, but a little girl will accuse Peter of being one of Jesus' followers, and he will deny it three times. Now, now here's my question for you and my question for me as we move into a new year. And as we continue to experience incredible uncertainty for some of us in our families, for some of us in our jobs, for some of us in our schools, for some of us with our government leaders and with our economy. And the question just, it's really simple. It goes like this. Are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to trust God? In other words, can you maintain faith 
in God when there doesn't seem to be evidence of his activity in your life? Or maybe for someone to say, I don't even, I don't even see it in our world. Whether you realize it or not, your answer to that question is critical because it will determine your response to the continual and continuing uncertainty in your life. Honestly, um, I was thinking about this week. I think we Americans struggle with trusting God in times like this for a, for a very, very specific reason. I, I, think, I think traditionally Americans have equated God's presence in our lives with prosperity and physical, tangible blessing. So if life is good, God is with us. If life gets tricky, we wonder where God is. And it certainly can be true that when God is with us, the blessings and the prosperity flow. But, but here's the thing. Um, it's not always the case. In fact, if you were to ask Jesus' first disciples, what was the darkest moment you experienced after following Jesus, after leaving everything behind and, 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 and following him? When, when did you have the least amount of hope? When did you most wonder if you made a mistake when you followed him? I, I think they would answer by pointing to the night of the Last Supper. When when Jesus, they would say, when Jesus promised us that things would get worse, that one of us would betray him and then all of us would fall away. And then they would, they would describe what it felt like hours later watching him die on a Roman cross. Their darkest hours, well, they were the hours where they suspected that they had wasted their lives and that God wasn't at work in the midst of their uncertainty. Well, and then, and then if you were to turn the corner and ask the question, okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, when do you think God was doing the greatest work in your life? And if we ask them that question, I'm convinced that they would have pointed to the exact same hours when it seemed like he was doing the least. Because those very same hours, when it seemed like God was missing not paying attention, not in control. God was, in fact, changing the world. The very same hours when it seemed like God was absent, he was at work behind the scenes doing something more incredible, more wonderful than they could possibly have imagined. In fact, those hours where they experienced the deepest, darkest loss of hope were in fact the epicenter of God's mission to save humankind. Here's the thing. Um, as I was thinking about that principle and I was thinking about all of you, I realized something. The disciples aren't the only ones to have experienced that paradox. In fact, if, if you're here in the room, all around you are people who have experienced that reality in their lives. And if you're in a living room with two other people, you've got people around you that would affirm that reality as well, that paradox. People who would readily say that, okay, God's greatest works in my life are generally done at times of incredible uncertainty. That's just what God seems to do over and over and over again. And so the question before each of us is, is whether we will choose to maintain our faith in God's work when we can't see God's work. In those moments when our faith begins to be shaken and we begin to doubt and we have reason to doubt, will we continue to place our faith in the reality that God is still at work, that God is still 
in control. And I know what a few of you are thinking. That's neat, preacher boy. It seems even a little bit inspirational. I'll have to think about that. But <laughs> that's not going to help me tomorrow morning, right? Because I need to reopen the dining room in my restaurant. And that's not going to help me get my kids back into school full time. I mean, hybrid learning is no joke, right? And it's not going to change anything about my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter. And that doesn't bring an end to the pandemic. And that doesn't bring peace to suffocating political tensions in our country. And so at some level, you're right. <laughs> but let me tell you something else. Even though the understanding that God is still in control, whatever our circumstances, doesn't change our circumstances. It does allow us to embrace uncertainty with hope. Hope that though life is uncertain, God is not uncertain. Although life and family and the economy and the government are uncertain, God is not uncertain. And somehow, knowing this keeps us from making decisions that can even further complicate the difficulties that we're facing. This understanding allows us to go to bed at night with a sense of peace, whatever storm rages around us. Early pastor named Paul calls it the peace that passes understanding. It, it, it's a peace that, that we can access through faith even when all of the evidence around us would, would point us to the fact that, that peace is impossible. And, and that, that belief, that trust in God, it does something else too. It keeps us on the lookout for a glimpse of how God may be at work. Because here's the thing. He is at work. He is at work in your life. He is at work in your mess. He is at work in your broken relationships. He is at work in your impossible financial situation. He is at work behind the scenes when you sit at your desk and have to make decisions about other people's livelihoods that just break your heart. He is at work even when you can't see it. He is still in control. All right, before I pray for you, um, I want to give you a couple of questions to help you digest what we've just experienced. And uh, by the way, this week's questions offer you an incredible opportunity not only to reflect on your own story, but also to share how God has met you in past times of uncertainty. So the first question uh, goes like this. When in your life have you felt like things were most out of control? And in other words, when in your life have you felt most powerless to impact a challenging situation? And when feelings of hopelessness have left you feeling vulnerable and exposed. And it's possible that season, you know, some of us would say, man, it was decades ago, failing marriage, kid questions. I, that, that was my time. For others of you, you might have been like Tuesday, right? It was like very, very recently, and I'm still right in the throw of it. Uh, and, and, and so that's just the first question. When in your life have you ever felt that way? The second question goes like this. Um, how did that uncertainty challenge the way you thought about God? Did, did your sense of uncertainty draw you towards God or make you question his care for you? 
And how does the knowledge that most of the Bible narrative was written during times of uncertainty, how does that comfort you or how does that challenge you or how does that encourage you? Okay, that's, that's the second question. Third question goes like this. Um, this is like a really long question. I apologize. I was trying to edit and I, I failed. But uh, looking back on your life, have you ever experienced a season of deep uncertainty that proved to be catalytic to your faith? And if so, describe the situation. Because if we're honest, for many of us, a season of uncertainty allowed us to place our trust in God in a tangible way for the first time. I mean, if you grew up in church, I thought, yeah, I trust in God. I believe in God. I put my faith in God. Sure, absolutely. And, and maybe you had a confirmation process where you stood up in front of an auditorium and I said, you know, this is it. I place my faith in Jesus. No looking back, no looking back. Maybe you even sung a song, right? But, but, but it's almost like you hadn't really ever experienced a time of uncertainty or a significant trial in your life. And so when that happened for the first time, you look back and say, my faith went from black and white to color. It went from abstract to concrete. It, it became real to me. God became real to me for the first time. And, and, and if I'm honest, without that trial, I don't know that that would have happened yet. And I think there's a good reason for this experience. It, it's like, because when we run out of answers ourselves, we have the opportunity to look to God for the answers and to find that God is faithful to us in real and tangible ways, ways that move us emotionally. So if you've had that experience, I just plead with you, share it with someone this week. Honestly, those of us experiencing a season of uncertainty right now, we need your story to point us to hope. So I guess you have a homework assignment. If that's, if that's part, of your, part of your story, just share it with someone else, maybe even over lunch today. All right, that brings us to the end of our time together. We'll pick it up there next week. And so if you're here in the room, what I'd like to invite you to do is to stand. Um, and if online, just hang on with us and we'll close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather this morning in a world that feels like it's spinning out of control. And we look to you, the light on the other side of the darkness, the peace on the other side of the storm. And we once again tie our hearts to the reality that you are faithful. We choose to believe that you are at work in our lives and in our world. Even though for a whole bunch of us, it's hard to see right now. Give us courage as we look back on your past faithfulness. Give us courage to not only acknowledge it, but to say, God, I, I could trust you then and I can trust you now. I don't know where the story goes from here. I don't know that the path forward is easy, but I have confidence that I do not walk it alone. And so this morning, once again, we thank you for Jesus, for his blood that was spilled, for his body that was broken, and for the peace that was restored. May we be ambassadors of the message of grace, especially in a time like this. And so, Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said,
Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of Still in Control. Standing with you in the ocean